Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this outspoken event with uh, Kate Holton and Katie McMahon. My name is Stephen Lang, and I'll be your host tonight. The format is that we'll start with a short interview with Katie here, 15 minutes or so, and then I'll invite Kate Holden to come up to the stage and we'll talk for about an hour, including time for questions at the end. Uh, we should be all done by our book signing by about 8 p.m. We are recording these events for our podcasts, so I will ask you when we get to the questions at the end to please wait for the microphone to come to you before you speak. Uh, before we start, I believe it's important that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered, the Jinnabara and the Gubbi Gubbi peoples. They are the keepers of the ancient stories of this place. I'd like also to acknowledge those who continue to work for the protection and promotion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, creating a legacy for future elders and leaders. Our first guest tonight is the delightful Katie McMahon, regular Attendees of outspoken events will remember that Katie has been with us before to speak about her marvellous debut novel, The Mistake. Now, less than two years later, she returns with her second book, The Accident. We might have to have a word with Kate about where you go after the mistake <laughs> and then the accident. Um, the catastrophe, the downfall, <laughs> the regret. I'm not quite no, sure you, where we go you here. You deviate, you break out, you explore new ground. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Katie lives in Hobart with their family, where she both practices as a doctor and teaches communication skills to medical students when not drinking tea. <laughs> I'm quoting from her biography here. Katie has very good friends up here in Melania, which is why we're able to welcome her back, which I have to say we're terribly pleased to be able to do. Please welcome Katie McMahon to Melania. Thank you. Kate, the accident. You've received a lot of very good publicity for your novels, um, particularly for the first one, which has you know, got out. You had Leon Moriarty, you had a whole lot of people giving you kind of blurbs. But that publicity, probably to try and increase sales, has been pushing you to the end of the, um, to clit shift end of the, to, the clit. <laughs> <laughs> the chiclet end of the shelf. <laughs> oh, no. Freudian slip there. Yeah. But I don't think that's really where you're aiming for. I don't. I get my, my my guess would be that you're interested in. Oh God, I'm, my 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 metaphors get worse. I think you're interested in something else. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there so, are so, I do so many possible puns that I just can't quite think of any. Um, uh, so what do you mean? Do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to dig me deeper here, aren't you? Um, what, what I was saying is that yeah. it seems to me that there is, in, in terms of the publishing industry, there is this mm. kind of labelled chiclet, which is mm -hmm. very light, fluffy, mm -hmm. romance kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And what I was trying to say is that I think that your novels actually have a, a, a deeper aim in mind. Yes. <laughs> actually, I have to say that I really struggle with the idea of this term chiclet and even the term women's fiction which is used to kind of describe fiction that's 
written by and largely about and for women. Um, I don't think that that the same kind of stuff written by men is ever described as men's fiction. It's just fiction. So, um, and I also think that, you know, to use the term chiclet to characterise books about um, sex, about romance, about relationships, about women's inner lives, it's kind of just a way of trivialising those concerns. And, um, oh, thanks. <laughs> and, and actually, when I was writing The Mistake, my first book, there's a reasonable amount of sex in it. Like, I don't know, I think the book's 370-something pages and there's maybe seven pages with, you know, sex in them. And um, a, a, a central preoccupation of one of the characters is her body image and, and in particular, how that relates to her sexuality. And when I was writing that book... I became aware that I felt really uh, intimidated about writing the sex scenes. And, you know, I really strived to do my best to write them well. I read, you know, David Lodge and how he thinks you should write a sex scene and Jerome Stern and what they thought. And I still felt um, kind of intimidated by it. And once I got past, well, you know, well, my dad's going to read it and, you know, this boy I used to like in high school is probably going to read it. Um, but, but, you know, I could put those aside. But what I realised was that I've, I knew, well, people won't take me seriously as a writer if I have a book with a lot of sex in it. It will be just this salacious, saucy, raunchy, sassy, chick-lit beach read. Um, and in case you haven't noticed, that annoyed me slightly. <laughs> yeah. No, um, but there's also when you're writing sex scenes, and I've mm. done it myself, is there's yeah. always this, the, the Bad Sex Award that's given yeah. once a year. Yeah. And you're, you're ter yeah, terribly yeah. aware yeah, yeah. as you're doing yeah. it, you know, that, that oh. to, to try and avoid the purple yeah. prose in some way or other. Oh, yeah. you've got to, you, yeah, you don't, you've got to avoid the purple prose. Um, oh, definitely, you, you know you must do that, and I guess I tried to make it more about the feelings people were having than, you know, which bits of anatomy were going anywhere near other bits of anatomy. Yeah. But in this novel, you actually <coughs> deal with some quite kind of serious topics that yeah. you, you've taken on here. You're talking about eating disorders, alienation, unrequited love. Uh, I, I was curious to know, with, with the novel The Accident, the one we're talking about tonight, yeah. it, it, is that did you start with the idea of talking about these things? I ask the question because as a writer, I kind of start with a kind of glimmer, an mm. idea, a situation yes. or a character or something yes. like that, yeah. and then things kind of get built around it. I was yes. wondering what your process was. Yes, um, my process was that I wanted to write about actually unrequited love. And... Actually, I started off coming from the point of view of the stories of, you know, the, the women in the background. Like, there's a TV show that I really enjoy called Love. Um, it's, you know, it's a Netflix series. And it had this one particular scene where, you know, the hero who's completely lovable and, and whatever is uh, chatting to these 
kind of, you know, random women who were just kind of average-looking and averagely dressed. And as he's chatting to them, he's looking over their shoulder at, you know, the beautiful, feisty, independent, flawed in a lovable way heroine. Um, and I sort of thought, oh, yeah, but those women he's chatting to, you know, they've got a story too. Like, what's the story of the women, or of the people, actually, of the people whose love is, is never requited, if you like? Uh, so, actually, that was where I started from, which is not the only way the novel unfolds. But, um, yeah, I was interested in loneliness and the absence of connection for some people. Yeah. And the, also, one of the themes that mm. really comes up is kind of connected to that, which mm. is this idea that the actions that we take when we're young have enormous consequences later on in life. Yeah. And in some times it, it seems a bit unfair as well because when we're young we don't know how our actions are going to affect other people. Mm. We're ignorant of a whole lot of different things and it, it seems mm. a terrible shame that in mm. some ways your whole life or someone else's life is mm. going to be ruined because of what you did there. Mm. Indeed. Uh, yes, and actually that storyline, I mean, it's hard to talk about it without kind of giving away spoilers, but that, that storyline, um, which is to do with, you know, a teenage boy doing stuff that, you know, boys will be boys, um, is, is a line that has often been used and, and that, you know, affecting him later on in a way that, yeah, is, is potentially unfair. You could, you, you I think, I hope readers will be divided about whether he should be forgiven or whether he should be held to account for those actions. But actually, um, when, when my husband read that passage, he just said, oh, there's so many men who are going to read this and just cringe and not be able to read on. Uh, and I was like, yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. So look, maybe it would be a good opportunity for you to read a short passage yeah, from, from yes, the book? Yeah, by all means. Hmm. This is actually... Um, <clears throat> one, actually, what I think the emotional heart of this book is is um, a relationship between a mother and a teenage daughter. So in this passage is... Uh, the mother has, has just picked her daughter up from school. <clears throat> so, chapter eight. Emma had been surly after school again, snapping the edge of her uniform dress into the car with an enraged flick of her wrist and making a contemptuous, tormented click in her throat when Grace leaned over to kiss her hello. Grace had started off thinking about the stress of a new school and the reality of mental illness and feeling compassionate and concerned. That had lasted about a quarter of the way home. Then Grace started feeling irritated. How bad could Emma's life really be? She was a middle-class young person in a stable democracy, being driven home to a nice home in a temperature-controlled car. <laughs> Emma was wearing a goddamn Garmin. Want some avo on toast with me, Grace said, once they were inside and she'd put the kettle on. It had started to rain. Nah, Emma replied without raising her head. She wasn't using her phone. Her elbows were on the dining table, fingertips idling over the edge of the carefully stocked, by Grace, fruit bowl. 
Her half-open school bag was on its side by the window. Her discarded shoes trailed their laces across the recently vacuumed, also by Grace, lounge room doorway. So, that was all enraging. And yet, at this time of day, Emma's average brown hair appeared mousy and straggly. The hopeful ponytail of the morning was flat. Her upper arms were white and freckly and artless. Grace thought about the merciless year 10 eyes of the cool boys. No worries, Ems, she said. Although, should she be asking subtle, probing questions? So, what are the girls in your art class like? Or cutting to the chase? All right, Em, did you eat your lunch today? Or making general, see about Wimbledon? Conversation that broadened Emma's worldview. She'd always trusted she'd be one of those brisk, confident mothers. Someone who peeled potatoes and decided rules and fired off pithy reprimands without thinking too hard about anyone's psychology. Now she wondered whether those women even existed in real life. One of the voices that you... you, you, you <laughs> one of the voices that you... I mean, it's interesting, you've got, in this book, there's kind of three mm. narrations yeah. going on. Yes. And there's actually something a little bit unusual going on there because you've given two of them the first person, yeah. which yes. is... Um, I mean, as a yeah. writer, the choice yeah. to give a character the first person, mm. there's an intimacy that goes with it because you're allowed to give the, the reader the internal thoughts of the person, but it also means that the reader can't know anything that the character doesn't know. So you, yeah. you're kind of constraining yourself. So I thought that was kind of an interesting yeah. choice to make. Did yeah. You? I flip-flopped a lot on that. <coughs> Actually, um, one of the characters who's ended up in the first person, Zoe, I wrote whole kind of chapters translating it back to third person and thinking, oh, is that better? Because that might work better but then deciding in the end, no, it worked better in, in the first person because of that intimacy and because I think part of what I was trying to do with this book is show the same event from two different perspectives. So I was interested in how we, you know, we get out of a certain situation, what we, um, you know, what, what our preconceptions lead us to perceive. Uh, so that, I was able to do that by having two people in the first person, but I did have to work really, really hard to make their voices distinct so that the reader will know who's talking, as it were. Uh, interestingly enough, as an introduction that I gave you there, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things you do is to teach communication to, to, young, med to young medical yeah. students. Yes. And I, uh, I wondered, because is that, does her character come out of your experience teaching, teaching medical students how to communicate and, and just you know continuing a secondary mm. question mm. is what's that like teaching medical students how to communicate oh yeah yeah good good question um i'm not sure which one to answer first i mean no my characterization of imogen does not come out of teaching the medical students to communicate it really came out of uh wanting to explore and draw on that sense of alienation that I think sometimes people can feel when they don't quite fit in 
and they feel lonely, we might feel lonely and so we might try harder to connect with people and in so doing, uh, if, if we're not particularly good at knowing how to do that, we might alienate people further so then we get more lonely so then we try harder and there can be a bit of a, a vicious cycle and it can... Um, yeah, end up in, in a person feeling very lonely and misunderstood. So that's where really where I was coming at, at it from with Imogen, in that, yeah, she's a person who really lacks social nous, lacks the ability to read people, doesn't know how to get the things she most wants. Yeah. Mm. Teaching the communication skills to medical students is, like, mostly really fun and lovely. Uh, the only time, you know, some people think they already know everything and that's really annoying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I, I just... I'm going to follow up on that one just a little bit because... Yeah. Oh, I just uh, remember this is being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, just that yeah. doctors are not really terribly well known for their communication skills. Yeah. It, it's a other shame. Than, other than, you know, yeah. person and company. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, mm, I know. I do feel that uh, if I have to have my gallbladder out, for example, I don't really care that much whether or not the surgeon who does it has a great bedside manner, as long as he or she knows how to do that, which is not easy. Like, I could not do that. It is not in my nature to have the right kind of mind to be able to make those decisions and be so black and white in my thinking, which you, I think, have to be to pull off those surgeries. That, that, that's my perspective. Um, it's, I think it takes a really incredible human being to have warmth and empathy and great communication skills and also be able to do that. And, you know, those rare doctors are just fantastic and, you know, beloved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One last question. Yeah. Uh, the, the mountain. Mm, yeah. It takes, it takes a, quite a strong role. I mean, it's not a plot point, but yeah. it's, it's, it's there in above yeah. Hobart all yeah. the time as, as a presence. Yes. Oh, I'm glad that you notice that because I really wanted to develop my ability to write about place in this book and I set myself that challenge and the mountain, um, Kunanyi, Mount Wellington, is very much a focal point in Hobart and so, yeah, I wrote about the mountain from the different characters' perspectives, um, which... Yeah, it was something I loved, I loved to do. <laughs> I mean, is it an important... Is Mount Wellington important to you? Yeah, yes. I very often look at it and really think about how all our... You know, my life's playing out with all its little amazing things, like, oh, wow, I got a book deal, and oh, no, my child's having a hard time at school, and, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and the mountain's just kind of there, like that solid, transcendental presence that was there before and will be there after. And that's, in that way, it's important to me. Yeah. 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 Katie, thank you so much for coming up to Melanie oh, to talk to about the Thank you so, so much, Stephen, for having me. Yeah. Put your hands together, please. Thank you.
Thank you.